Hi, Melissa. Are you there? Hey, yeah. Hey, how are you? Good. It's fun to think back on the <laughs> whole 10 year. This is basically at the 10 year mark. Decade in retrospect. There, there reaches a point where adults just reminisce instead of talking about the future. <laughs> okay, I'm not to that point yet. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's good. I doubt you'll ever get to that point. <laughs> Let's hope not. Always yeah. something to look forward to. Hi, I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is season one, episode six, Resilience. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. This is going to be an episode on how we keep going, even when or especially when things get hard. We all want to do hard things, things that will make life better for ourselves and for those we love, but hard things mean setbacks, disappointments, sometimes brick walls. How do we keep going in spite of those things? My guest for this episode is Melissa Seavey, who specializes in helping artisans in the developing world sell their products in the United States. This is one of those ideas that when you first encounter it, seems obviously great. After all, travelers that come from wealthier countries, they see these creations, blankets, baskets, pottery, jewelry, and the like, and they immediately fall in love. Their purchase instantly becomes a treasured keepsake. So just import artisan goods and they should sell like crazy, right? Well, if you're familiar with this space, you've seen hundreds of these businesses struggle to grow and eventually the vast majority of them fail. It turns out selling artisan goods at scale means solving entirely new problems. Only a handful of people in the entire world have really figured this out. You see, it's one thing to help 20 artisans sell a thousand baskets. It's entirely something else to assemble a thousand weavers to sell 65,000 baskets. But Melissa has done that very thing and actually all just in a few months. Here she is telling part of that story. One really interesting experience that we had a couple of years ago, we were working with artisans across Rwanda who are basket weavers. So we were working with about 10 cooperatives. And one of one of these cooperatives, it was a women's group that was way up in this really remote village. We had to take motorcycles for like an hour on this dirt road that was like a cliff on one side. And we get kind of to the, the top of this remote mountain village to meet with these artisans who had a beautiful craft and and they were really talented weavers, but lacked market access even within their own country. So we sat with them and we had a spec sheet with the specifics of what we required for this order. And it was a it was a traditional basket design that they were used to. We made it really clear what we what we needed. And so they said, okay, we'll charge you this much per basket. And we had done our research and to understand how much materials cost and how much a good living wage would be. And so we knew how much would be a a good price. And so they proposed their price and we were like, that's way too low. And we (laughs) bartered up with them and they, and I remember they just laughed. We're just on this, this little hillside and they just thought it was so funny that these partners were bartering (laughs) up. I'm sure they were like, You don't get how business goes, do you? So this experience was years in the making. Melissa got her start by managing a summer program for American college students in Uganda. 
The group was working on various development projects, the kind that often do more for the students than they do for the people that they're helping. Melissa has such a great way of describing what that first time in Africa did for her. What I loved about that first experience was getting to break some of the Western stereotypes of Africa. (laughs) I think just from media and whatever, wondering if like, is this going to be safe? And, you know, and, and also kind of the the type of messaging that we get from global uh, NGOs often that portrays sadness or, or this kind of stuff and just really getting to experience people in 3d and just seeing what a rich culture, a very celebratory culture. And and then I think on the other side of the coin, often I hear people, and, and this has especially happened as the years have gone on and I've been able to spend a lot of time abroad. People will go on a short trip to a place and say, you know, the people were just so poor, but they were so happy. And <laughs> that too, I think is such an oversimplification of humans that, and, and getting to stay for that four months and getting to understand the complexities of poverty and seeing really capable people who in other scenarios would be able to thrive, that they, they were not lacking in capability, but lacking in opportunity and, and really seeing the complexities there. Seeing people in 3D is a phrase I plan to use on a regular basis. It's such a great metaphor. When most of us look at the big problems facing the world, we just see them in two dimensions. But real people live in the middle of these challenges. And if you don't understand the people with their personalities and idiosyncrasies, you don't really understand the problems they're facing. Being there makes all the difference. Coming to know these women made Melissa want to help them. So she and her companions had the idea of selling Ugandan jewelry back in the United States. Now, origin stories like this become something like mythology over time. They're meant to inspire and amaze us, almost like a pivotal moment in a movie that starts our hero on his or her path. In real life, most of these stories are fake. They have elements of truth for sure, but the gritty details tend to get polished away over time. Melissa has told her origin story a lot, and I love that she keeps a more realistic perspective on it. Listen to how she explains why they chose jewelry as a business to help these women. The original idea was from this need of seeing these really wonderful women that we got close to and thinking, how can we um, create something so they can have jobs on an ongoing basis? Now, where did the idea of jewelry come from? I wish that I could say that it was from market research and testing, (laughs) (laughs) but it was none of that. It like literally was that we saw jewelry and we're like, Ooh, I like the jewelry here. Let's start a jewelry organization. And so, and that had consequences. You know, we, it's kind of like we knew our, our social issue, but we did not know the, the model. We didn't, we didn't go deep on understanding what model we were going to use to sustain. This is something when I talk to people that are thinking about starting a nonprofit or a social enterprise, making sure that they put as much emphasis on their their sustainability model, their business model, as they do on the, the social issue that they're working to solve. Yeah. And that's something we did not do from the beginning. This is where we get to the heart of this episode. When I decided I wanted to interview Melissa, it was largely because of this part of her. She's an incredibly resilient person. I wanted to understand how she kept going despite a lot of discouraging times. Passion doesn't pay for groceries. So if you're not making enough for basic necessities, how in the world do you keep going? There's a lot of fascinating research into resilience. 
The concept has been popularized through media, including books like Grit by Dr. Angela Duckworth. I highly recommend that one. Another great resource I found is the Resilience Research Center at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. There, Dr. Michael Ungar has written a manual for designing programs that build resilience in children, youth, and families. I've linked to it in the description for this episode. Dr. Ungar explains that resilience happens through three processes. The first is recovery. Basically, as we're knocked off balance by hard circumstances, one way that we show resilience is by getting back on our feet something that Melissa seems to be very good at. I asked Melissa what motivated her to keep going when things were so hard. Really, the first few years, myself and my two co-founders were actually pouring quite a bit of money into it. So I remember, and and we had all come back and were doing full-time school or jobs. And so we would get on a call once a month and say, okay, we didn't make the sales we needed to, and it's time to pay our artisans. So who's got a few hundred dollars? And that went on for the first couple of years. During that time, we generally, we were able to pay our artisans and sometimes it was pretty skinny. We'd take out a loan over in Uganda to be able to pay them and then do a pop-up sale here to be able to pay for that. But then also we didn't pay ourselves the first several years. I was putting in full-time work. And so I had a plethora of side hustles actually during that time, which ranged from... There was there was a time where I was teaching dance to girls in my neighborhood. I put out an ad to run people's dogs for money. <laughs> and I was doing giving plasma to pay for groceries. And at oh, that wow. point, I had a graduate degree and I was in my late 20s and it was really humiliating. And so <laughs> there, was, there was a lot going on there, um, trying to keep afloat. So we were not taking salaries on the U.S. side. Something that I have learned is part of sustainability is sustaining the people working on it because we were so close to burnout because we just, we had the passion, but it was a struggle to pay for groceries. So figuring out a more sustainable model, like it wasn't just for fun or to show people that we could grow. It was like, so that we could eat on this side. So, I mean, talk about that for a minute, if that's okay, because that's when a lot that's when most people just quit. Uh-huh. I, I mean, like keeping Musana going during a time when you're literally giving away, you know, your plasma just to eat. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, what like what in the world kept you going thinking, man, I have to stick I have to stay with this instead of just saying, Hey, we made our best effort. It's time to move on. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I do wonder, you know, people say like, you just persevered and, and sometimes I'm like, or I was just dumb. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But, and I had people along the way that said, you are stupid for starting this. You should make your money first and then later in life, do your social good. And, you know, I started questioning starting something young, but, you know, I knew these women and I knew their kids and I'd been to their homes. And so that probably was, they, they felt like family. And I, I felt like, okay, we have, we've brought them into this. We've promised a lot. And just so often in our town of Lugazi, there's a lot of broken promises from politicians, from mm. people coming in, you know, visiting for a little bit and saying, oh, we're going to come back and build you a school. And they never come back. And so I think I'd seen a lot of broken promises. We'd even I remember when we talked with a group of women 
during the course of the summer in this kind of remote area of Uganda. And they, they had said, I, I can't remember what we had, you know, we, we said we wanted to come back and they said, you don't need to promise that. People tell us things like that all the time. And, and they were referring to both, you know, their local leaders. And, and so they're like, don't promise. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I didn't yeah. want to be another broken promise. Dr. Angar explains that an essential ingredient in resilience is a sense of belonging coupled with a responsibility for others. He says, quote, knowing that our lives matter to others and feeling a sense of connection because of it is a powerful force for thriving when our lives are full of challenges and our well-being is threatened. In a nutshell, this seems to be what kept Melissa going when she was walking dogs and selling plasma to make it all work. If it had just been about her and a personal goal or dream that she was pursuing, it wouldn't have provided the same motivation. But there was no way Musana could keep going under those circumstances. According to Dr. Ungar, recovery can only last for so long. If things keep on being hard, resilience has to come from some other way. The second way it can come is through adaptation. This is when we change ourselves and our behaviors to accommodate the difficult circumstances. It's not about overcoming what's hard. It's about adapting so it's no longer hard. And now for a word from our sponsor. Do you teach ethics to others? Whether it's at a university, school, company, or agency? If so, you know how hard it can be to find engaging and useful materials for your class. At Merit Leadership, we have decades of award-winning experience teaching ethics in top programs. Our ethics classroom offers complete lesson plans, videos, exercises, and assessments, all in an online resource that's easy to use. You can pick just what you need or even teach an entire course. Everything we do focuses on developing ethical skills that help people succeed where good intentions alone fall short. To learn more about the Business Ethics Field Guide and our classroom in a box, check the show notes for a link or visit meritleadership.com. In the early years, the Masana team did make one big change by helping artisans begin to make jewelry that better fit American tastes. Styles can vary widely across the world, and what Musana had been producing for Ugandans didn't have the wide appeal in the U.S. that they thought it would. That one adaptation improved things somewhat, but it still wasn't quite enough to make ends meet for the founders. And that's when they had a fantastic idea. Listen to how Melissa and her partner, Lyndon Baker, figured out a new way to operate. We had been, we were probably six years, six, seven years into Musana, and had really got to know the plight of artisans. And in fact, Artisan Craft is the second largest employer of people in the developing world, second only to agriculture. Wow. So hundreds of millions of people engaged in traditional handcraft that's very often like a cultural preservation that's been passed down from generation to generation. So very highly skilled artisan craft and yet lacking access to, you know, the, the Western consumer market. And so understanding that situation, we started thinking broader and thinking, how can we connect groups like Musana to, to the Western market? And out of that was born the concept of fair kind, where we uh, started in the corporate gifting space. And so especially because we're working, working with artisans, everything is handmade. It can be modified and created specifically for a company with their logo and their colors. Um, we launched into that space 
And also understanding, and, and again, this is kind of what I was touching on earlier, that we need to think about the market dynamics. And what's happened over the past decade is companies are wanting a social cause. This kind of provided a unique way that we could approach companies and say, hey, you can be engaged in doing real social good and providing people jobs, fair pay work, dignity in their work, and you don't have to donate anything. You're purchasing product using a budget you already have for gifting, but making a more ethical choice. Yeah, and that's awesome. Yeah, and so we actually found a really we found a really interesting market niche as we worked together with them and they're able to have this great social story to tell with their products. Their customers love it and are excited and it makes them more excited about the company that they're buying from. It, it, it was understanding market dynamics, harnessing those for social good. For adaptation to create resilience, it needs to be a change that is sustainable. It means changing yourself or your approach in a way that circumstances support instead of undermine. The way you heard Melissa just describe the pivot to fair kind, corporate gifting and more artisan groups made it sound like it was an obvious success, but that's not how new ideas look when they first appear. They're exciting, but they're unproven. Melissa and Lyndon had to try it out. And that's when they came into their first big order. This is a great story. Okay, well, this is kind of a funny story as well. And this is definitely laying my cards all out. (laughs) If it can help anybody take the jump, then great. So I had been in Uganda working on a project with Musana. And it was coming up on the national elections. And that typically could be kind of a a crazy time. It was looking like we were would possibly have to stay indoors for a couple of days in case there were riots and and such. And so I had some friends that I knew from home that were living in Rwanda and they were always saying, Melissa, you're so close, you know, just the next country over, come visit us. And so I thought, oh, I don't want to, you know, spend two days inside. I'll go visit my friends down in Rwanda. And I, I was going down there and I said, hey, could you introduce me to some basket weaving groups? I just like, I had seen Rwandan baskets. They're beautiful. Got connected, and my friend that lived there, he connected me to an artisan group, and I met with them and saw their beautiful craft, and and it was great. And I brought a few samples home without a plan in mind. Well, mm-hmm. just a couple weeks after getting home, a friend of mine contacted me and said, and he worked for a large company, and he said, "Hey, does Musana do baskets?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> and so we started engaging in a conversation with this company and we met with this company actually for several weeks. And the day they signed um, the contract to do this large order of, it turned out to be 50,000 baskets. We said, they said, okay, all of our executives have signed it. Um, can you send us your EIN number and your, your company information? We said, yeah, hold on. And we went to our office and registered fair kind as a business and sent them our EIN. And we were like, I hope that they can't detect that this was a company that was started 30 minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank heavens they didn't go look, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fair kind, as you can tell, has worked out really well. It was an effective adaptation in the language of Dr. Angar. Here's another beautiful story of one of their more recent projects. Yeah. We have now probably worked with around 2,500 artisans. And some of my favorite experiences so far have been opportunities to work with less established groups 
and really build their capacity. And just earlier this year, we did a large order of handmade wool dryer balls from Nepal that was made by a women's group there. And then we worked with a shelter several of my colleagues had had worked with a shelter for women and girls that have come out of sex trafficking. And they have a tailoring training program as the, the girls are preparing to, you know, leave the shelter and go back into their communities to be able to have, have a source of income. In the past, they've just gone out into their villages and, and been the, the town seamstress. Well, we were able to work with this shelter. They have never exported a product before. Wow. And we were working with their sewing graduates in five villages that were sewing these bags. They would all come on buses to the, the main point in, in Kathmandu where we do quality control. I actually went there with a one-way ticket and I said, I can't leave until we are able to produce 10,000 bags per week. Wow. And yeah, and so that was the goal. And so it took six weeks and we were able to hit that and they were high quality. And now this group, and, and actually in addition to paying all of the artisans that, that sewed the bags, we put in a, a portion of the price to go towards the shelter itself. And so that one order was able to provide funding to sustain the shelter for a year, which houses 100 girls. That's Um, amazing. Yeah. And so, and now they have this capacity to create bags. And so we're looking for other ways that they can create conference bags and, and they can screen print on them. And so again, giving companies a choice to say, hey, we have to buy bags for our conference anyways, might as well make an ethical choice and um, source these bags that have more of a, a meaning and communicate that to our audience. This story tells us about the third path to resilience that's described by Dr. Ungar. It happens through transformation. Instead of recovering to keep going or adapting to better meet our circumstances, we become more resilient by changing the conditions around us. That's what Melissa is doing now. In fact, she's helping entire organizations change in a way that lasts. At the time of our interview, I caught Melissa at the cusp of a new venture. The idea is fascinating, but when you listen, look for the three paths to resilience, recovery, adaptation, and transformation. They're all in this next moment of our interview. Yeah, so I'm kind of going even more narrow. So with Fairkind, we've been doing, primarily our messaging is corporate gifting. And I'm looking to do solely ethical sourcing. And so that's not a super established phrase, but I want to make it one. <laughs> what, what really excites me is this greater message that goes beyond what I'm able to do with the, the rise, again, in the past decade, really, of CSR, corporate social responsibility. Uh, a lot of it has been companies will make their money and then donate some of it to charity. And what ethical sourcing is doing is saying, hey, look at what you're purchasing and think about how you can make more ethical choices in your purchasing. And yeah. that in itself creates more embedded impact, you know, impact that, at, that grows as your company grows. That's not an afterthought, that's not disconnected from what you're doing, that's embedded in what you're doing. I, I really think that if every company could even be like 1% more ethical in their sourcing, that could move the dial on 
poverty and opportunity for people around the world because so much of what we're sourcing is coming from societies that are underdeveloped. Yeah, I love it. It's a fantastic idea. I'm excited to see where you take it. Me too. (laughs) Here (laughs) goes nothing. That's right. I mean, so that last thing you said, here goes nothing, that feels like, I mean, in the years I've known you for a long time now. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be your instinctive reaction to these things. Here goes nothing, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you know, I, I find that that comes from a place of privilege because, you know, even in my, what I can call my poor years, where I was doing plasma and running dogs to pay for groceries. I, n- I have never experienced true poverty. Like I always had safety nets. I had family that could help me and that did help me. I even at one point sold my sewing machine to my parents so that I could pay for groceries. Wow. And I now have a sewing machine again that I bought. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but it's been really cool to see, and particularly with our artisans in Uganda, who now I've, some of them I've known for a decade seeing them as they come out of kind of the shroud of poverty, being able to think creatively and being able to be less risk averse. And and actually this played out in the beginning with when we started Musana, we had this idea that it would just be kind of a rotating door that people would come in for a couple of years, get on their feet and then rotate out, start their own businesses and we'd have new people come in. But we realized that they were scared to death after just a couple of years of stability to have to go back to instability. But as women have gained confidence and had that stability for a few years, we see them start to take risks of starting their own businesses on their own and and being able to to be creative because they're not worried about putting food on the table. And so that's kind of all wound together, opportunity and creativity. You can tell why I admire Melissa so much. Isn't it a powerful insight that creativity and opportunity come hand in hand? Our moments of resilience shape us, and they prepare us to do harder things, but they necessarily come from tough experiences. I asked Melissa to tell me about one of her toughest failures of the last 10 years. Yeah, I remember this was a few years in with with Musana. We did a couple of years of fundraising galas. These were huge productions, actually. We, were, we had 30 volunteers that we were managing. And so we kind of made them a really big deal. And for both times, we flew out one of our artisans to speak. And so they turned out to be really wonderful productions. But it really like took over my life and, and several of us that were working on it for like six months. And we just put our heart, heart and soul. We weren't sleeping. We were, you know, we were getting the media involved and all this. And I remember after the second year, we had a fundraising goal and it was big. It was, you know, like a hundred thousand dollars. And we're like, then we can build our workshop in Uganda and we can have, you know, some money in the bank to, to be able to invest in strategy. And at the end of the night, and it was this beautiful night, we had one of our artisans that's HIV positive. That's this woman that has this incredible story and she spoke from the heart and people were in tears and it was just, you know, everything was beautiful. The food was wonderful. And at the end of the night, we looked at our fundraising and it was about a quarter of that. And especially when we took out expenses and that night, and I was talking to my dad and I just started bawling and he was like, but Melissa, you know, you had a hundred people here that had an incredible experience that were moved and touched. And I remember saying, 
Dad, I am not in the business of inspiring people. I'm trying to put food on the table for my women in Uganda. I'm not trying to give people warm fuzzies. I'm trying to create a sustainable organization. And that helped us to really pivot and think we've got to get really serious about strategy. We'll finish with this last story. And this one isn't actually about Melissa, but it's an experience that she had that's precious to her. Funny enough, though, it's another story about resilience. It's about two women, jewelry artisans in Uganda, named Eve and Sissy. Imagine being able to relive a moment from the last 10 years. What moment would it be? This was a really beautiful moment that sticks in my memory. And I think stuck in my memory, especially through some of those more challenging years. Two years into Musana, I was supposed to be there for a month checking on a project and ended up extending my flight out and staying for eight months. <laughs> Broke up with my boyfriend over the phone, said, I'm not coming home. I had to have my parents come and move me out of my apartment because I had not prepared, I, I had not planned on staying that long. But during that time, we were able to stay and see that this was something that was worth growing. One of our artisans who in 2009, when we started, her name was Eve, she would come and wash clothes for our group. She was very shy. She wouldn't really look you in the eye. She didn't speak any English. So we didn't, we didn't really verbally communicate a lot, but she was just around our house a lot. And we really enjoyed having her. But I came back two years later and as she'd been in Musana for two years, she could speak English. She was just this bright force to be reckoned with. Very, very funny. She, they call her like the Mulalu, which means the crazy one. She's like the life of the party among our cohort. I remember at one point we had a new artisan coming to the Musana team and as was custom, everybody would sit in a circle and introduce themselves to each other. And I remember I was sitting next to Eve and when it got to Sissy, the new girl, she just started crying and she was speaking in the local language. So I asked Eve what she was saying and Eve told me she's, she's saying that life's been so difficult that her husband left her with two small children. Before this, her work was carrying large vats of water for eight hours a day. She just said, life's been really hard. And I just remember Eve turned to me and with a very reflective tone, she said, I remember, I remember feeling like her. And, and you know, I remembered Eve in that time as well. And then Eve went over and said something to Sissy. And when she came back, I asked her what she told her. And in essence, she'd said, girl, you have no reason to cry anymore. You're with us. You're going to be just fine. That moment of seeing kind of full circle, what can happen in the life of someone to given a little opportunity. That's a moment that I reflect on a lot. This story is why this all matters. If we have no other reason to be more resilient, it can just be that we're there to strengthen others. Dr. Ungar says that resilience is as much about what we have as what we think. And so I hope this episode has provided some new ways to think about the problems that you're tackling. So take courage and know that you're not alone. You can do it. Many thanks to Melissa Seavey for sharing her hard-earned wisdom and experiences. If you're interested in any of the products that are produced by her artisans, you can find them linked in the show notes. Also, there are links for you to learn more about how your business can find gifts and other products with an impact. If you enjoy How to Help, 
please take a moment to give us a positive review in your podcast app. It really helps us to reach more listeners. Also, be sure to subscribe so you can get future episodes automatically. Our next episode is all about creativity, an often misunderstood ability. I'm really excited about this episode. Our expert guide will be Andrew Maxfield, who among other things is a choral composer, an author, and an entrepreneur. He's also one of the most deliberately creative people that I know. I promise that you'll end up with all kinds of practical advice on how to be more creative. To stay up to date with how to help, I recommend our weekly newsletter. Each email highlights high impact organizations and shares a thought on how you can have more meaning in your work. You can find it at how-to-help.com. We're grateful as always to Merit Leadership who sponsors our podcast and to our production team, which included Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music. Our music comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club. If you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in the show notes. Finally, as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Miller, and this has been How to Help.